December is here. Isn't that weird? <laughs> um, it's, it's always, it, I always feel like every year that Christmas kind of sneaks up on me. I always feel like there should be like at least another week between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Because it's like Thanksgiving's here and you're anticipating that. You're looking forward to it. It happens. You enjoy it. And just as you start on your way down, all of a sudden you wake up and it's December. And, and with that, there's a lot of things that come surrounding December and the Christmas season. And, and even the holiday season, right? For, for many people, it's the end of the year stuff happens at work. And things get ramped up. And it's, I got to finish these quotas. And I got to end these projects. And we've got to wrap this up and finish that. This is also the time of year where in the work world, you've got some people that are starting to take off on vacation. And they're using all this stored up time. And they're here and there. And so now there's... there's absences, there's people missing in your teams, and you're trying to figure out, okay, what do I do, and how do we rearrange all this stuff? And then with all of those kinds of things, um, the, the students among us, they've got final exams or midterms that are coming up, so they're all worried about that. It's like, oh, I've only got, everything's packing into this little amount of time, and I can only change my grades for so much longer for this semester, and what do I have to do there? Then we've got all the social stuff that starts pop- popping up. Right? You start getting these messages. Hey, can we do this? Do you want to do that? I want them to do this. And here, and you're, it's with family. It's with friends. So you've got these, these Christmas parties happening, family gatherings, all of that. Add to that, most of us do some Christmas shopping. And for me, it's always the stress of, oh, great. I don't know what to get this year. Why? I said that last year and the year before and the year before. <laughs> so you're thinking about that and how do we do this, this, and, and what are we going to do? And um, you've got the winter decorations that, that happen. I've, I've got lights on my house, guys. I don't know about you. So, um, but that stuff all starts happening. Um, eggnog lattes and lots of chocolate. I don't know what it is specifically that, is all about what your December is like, but typically there's a lot of things coming up. On top of all of those things, it's, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of what really matters, what really is sitting on, on top of it all, which is, as a Christian, it's a time where we anticipate the arrival of Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, our Savior. All that in the mixture of everything else that's happening. All of the high-speed stuff. Um, Last week, if you were here and uh, John did announcements, you you might have heard him throw out the word Advent during announcements. Um, And some of you have been raised in traditions where that's a very common term. And you've heard the word Advent and it's always been part of Uh, what you're used to. But for others of you, you may have never even heard that word until last week. Or you've heard people talk about it and like, what is this Advent thing? What, what, what is that? What's, what's going on? Um, Growing up for me, the only thing I really remember about Advent was it was, I have this vague recollection of it being uh, connected to this wreath that they would put on the front of this like altar that that was in front of where the pastor spoke from. They put this wreath with these candles in it. And I remember as a little kid thinking, oh man, they must have run out of all the candles of the same color because there's some different colored candles even up here, <laughs> like a pink one. And they, they have all these different meanings. And so people will do this. And each, each Sunday, they'll light one more of the candles um, for Advent. That's all that I knew about it. My daughters grew up only thinking about Advent 
because of the chocolates that came out of an advent calendar. <laughs> and so for them, it's a treat, a chocolate treat every single day of the year. And you punch open the little thing and pull out a, a, little, a little advent chocolate, all right? But advent, the word advent simply means arrival. Okay, if you want to be all geeky and know the Latin, adventus just means arrival, all right? That's it, it's the arrival. The arrival of what? The arrival of Jesus. That's what Advent and the Advent season is. It's a season surrounding the arrival of Jesus to the earth, being born in a stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And it's a time of celebration and anticipation of Christmas Day and Jesus' birth. But what I want us to think a little bit about today is, well, first off, here's the, the, the mini message before the message, um, is we don't want to miss all that's happening and surrounding that in the swirl of all the other things that are happening in this time of year. Because it's very easy to do. And I don't want you guys to feel like I feel after Thanksgiving and Christmas coming where it's like, whoa, it was all rushed. It was all compressed. It all happened all at once. And man, I almost forgot all about Jesus until Christmas Day. And I'm like, oh, he's here already. That's not how it's supposed to work, right? Even Mary, when she heard the message from the angel and the angel said, you are going to have this child. You're going to name him Jesus. She had nine months to prepare for this. And she went through all the changes and the body changes of all this, preparing for, okay, a baby's coming. Aren't you glad it works that way? <laughs> it's better than just waking up one day and all of a sudden, boom, baby. <gasps> oh, <laughs> didn't expect that. <laughs> what are we going to do now? Right? But I want us to still have that time to anticipate and think about Jesus through this season of time and the arrival of Jesus and what that all means. Now, you might say, well, how does this all tie in? And, and we're going we're gonna to work on this. As, as we've been studying Genesis and studying Abram, last week, one of the big pieces that we looked at was the covenant that God made with Abram. And if you remember the, the, the story that we looked at in Genesis chapter 15, we talked about this really bizarre thing that happens. God speaks to Abram and, and gives him this grocery list of all these animals that he's supposed to bring. Right, And he brings this bull and this goat and these birds and he comes and he cuts them in half and we talked about this really weird ritual that he goes through because he was going to be making a covenant with God. And we talked about how when he did that, he then takes these animals and cuts them in half and what they would do in that tradition, in that culture, was that they would then separate the two and they would walk through this path of these animal carcasses. <laughs> A very weird thing, but the whole point of that, that, that ritual was to say, as they walked through that, that animal pathway, was to say, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, let me end up like these animals cut in half. A heavy kind of a thing. This is like, I swear on my mother's grave kind of a thing, right? A heavy thing. And when they did this, when, when Abram was called by God to do this and set this up, if you remember, Abram was asleep when the covenant ceremony took place. But God did both. God took both sides and said, I'm going to hold this covenant up because Abram, even if you could do it, all your ancestors, they're not going to be able to do it. It's not going to happen. 
So God did this on his own. And we've also been seeing then that through Abram, part of the covenant promise that God made to Abram was that he would be the beginning of a lineage that would lead all the way to Jesus. You may not know that, but that's exactly where Jesus' family line came all the way down to, all the way back to, back to this place where God made this covenant. And so as I started preparing Genesis 16 and 17 this week, because when I started the week, I actually thought, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at 16 and 17. We're going to have a Christmas message on the 18th. But the 16 and 17 and then beyond for the, for the next couple of weeks. But then I realized, December's already here. And I'm like, okay, December's already here. That means this is the first Sunday of the month of December. That means what we also do as a church is we, we experience communion together. We receive communion together. The Lord's Supper the Eucharist, depending on what tradition you come from. So here's what I've got starting Monday afternoon. I've got Advent season, Christmas. I've got Genesis 16 and 17. And I've got communion. And I'm supposed to squeeze all these things together. How are you supposed to do that? <laughs> Very well. I try to pull those things off. Um, and sometimes I don't. But the more I thought about it, and as I'm praying about it, I'm like, okay, Lord, where one of these things is going to kind of get left out this week. What, what do you want me to focus on? And as I thought more about it, I really felt like instead of focusing on our Genesis passage, because, hey, guys, it's going to take us forever to get through Genesis anyway, right? What's another week? <laughs> instead of focusing there, I really want to focus our worship service today on the celebration of communion. And I think that it fits because of how we've been understanding a little more about covenant, I think it fits because we're kicking off this Advent season of thinking about Jesus and thinking about Christmas and thinking what's going to happen. And it adds to our anticipation. But on top of that, it also meets the tradition that, we're, that we've established of once a month really coming together in worship with communion. Now, we will pick up back up in Genesis next week. But we have these three things intersecting in a way that I hope are going to stir our hearts today. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And if you don't know it, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the Lord's Supper and uh, communion. And, and I think that, the, the, well, I know the reason that they, they did it is because it's a very it was a very deeply impacting event for the disciples. Not only that, it was going to be passed on to the church all the way up until now. Now, let me, let me say this before, right before we get any farther here. You might be saying to yourself, once I've told you, okay, we're speaking on communion this morning. You might say to yourself, ah, I didn't really come for this. I've been in church a long time. I've taken the bread and the cup. I've even learned how to open these little plastic things. You know, you might say like, I don't need this message this morning. Well, I say you do, <laughs> okay? I think you do. I think we all do. And, and that's part of, as, as I was jumping into this, I, as I was praying more about it, I was feeling like we really do need this as a church. We really do need to take some time here to focus on this and, and allow this to be enriched in our hearts. And, and I just want to challenge you, even if you're already saying, ah, I don't need it. I think you do. 
And, and I'm praying that God has something here for you today. Because here's the thing. We might be familiar with communion, but do we really know it? All right? We can be familiar with something without really knowing it. And there's a difference. At, at music practice this week with this band, we were over at Doug's place, and, and we were talking a little bit about the progression from being familiar with a piece of music to then knowing the piece of music to then being able to use it as a tool to worship through. And guess what? There's a big difference. You can be familiar with it. Oh, I've heard that thing before. To then move to the spot where, okay, I don't have to think about what's the next chord. What's the next, oh, what's the, what's the lyric here? I don't know. Now that's knowing when you get to that place, you're like, okay, now I know it, I've got this. But then being able to use that as now a tool that you use to actually worship and engage this whole other spiritual side of who you are, that's actually a big jump. You might not know it, but that's actually what we're trying to do with you guys as the congregation in a a worship ministry. We're trying to not just every week give you a brand new song to let you say, oh, there's a new song and go on about your business. What we're hoping to do is give you, not only introduce you to it, to make you familiar with it, but give you a knowledge of it where you know it so that then you can actually open up the spiritual side of who you are and let your hearts worship. That these words would be more than just words on a screen. That you're actually engaging your soul. All right, and so that's, that's part of what we're wanting to sort through and, and think through here today. Because there's a difference in this, this being familiar with something to coming to a place where we have knowledge. Uh, there's a, a pastor in, in North County named Larry Osborne who taught me what he calls the four stages of knowledge. Now, I don't know if he made it up or he got it from somewhere else, but that's where I heard it from. So, but I think it's good. It's good for us to, to, to know this. Because as someone who is a, a pastor who wants to teach you things about the Bible which is what I'm trying to do every single week, my goal is that you would have knowledge, that you would acquire this knowledge, you would have this understanding, you would know this book. Why do I want you to know the book? Just so that you know a book and you can do really well in Bible trivia? No, so that you would know the God behind the book, that you would know the Lord and that your lives would be transformed by it. All right? So in order to do that, I'll sometimes read things, study things that help me learn how can I teach people something? How can I get people to a place of knowledge? And so Larry Osborne, what he says is, he says there's these four stages of knowledge. The first one is an introduction. He says the first time somebody hears something ever in their lives, it's the wow moment. He says, huh, that's brand new to me. You've introduced something to me. That's great. Stage one. Stage two and three are together with the familiarity um, area. The second, ta- the second phase is when you've already been introduced to it, you've heard it once before, but you kind of forget about it. It doesn't go really deep into who you are. And so the second time, it's like, oh, I forgot about that. Thanks for the reminder. Okay, I'm getting that. I, I've, I've, yeah, I've seen it before, and, but I forgot it. The third phase is... Now, full familiarity, I I really know what's going on here. It's like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. I recognize this. Here's the thing. When I say we're going to talk about communion here today, most of us 
are at least probably to that, that stage right there. You're like, communion? Yeah, I know what that's called. I know what that's about. I know there's a cup. I know there's bread. I know it's about Jesus on the cross. I know this stuff. I'm familiar with this. All right, but then the fourth stage of knowledge, he says, this is true knowledge. This is where a person, you've now handed someone enough information and repeated it enough with them and talked to them about it enough that now they have the knowledge. In fact, they have the knowledge without you. Even in my absence, you know what this is. You don't need me anymore. You have this. You know this. That's knowledge. All right, and so when we talk about communion, we talk about what is going on here. This is the sort of knowledge that we want to get to. I want our church to know communion and worship and prayer and a whole lot of other things too. But today, communion. And real knowledge takes repetition and practice. But here's the thing. We can short-circuit knowledge by turning something into a routine. All right, this is the moment of truth today. I hope you're ready for this. Now remember, you're in church. I want you to be honest, truly honest. And I'm setting you up to fail, but we're not gonna all judge you here today. But with the show of hands, you're in church, be honest. The show of hands, how many of you brushed your teeth this morning? Go ahead. All right, I'm not going to look. We're not going to look. Put your hands down. All right, now here's the thing. Many of us, myself included, because I knew I was going to ask this today. (laughs) I usually brush my teeth, but most of us brushed our teeth today, and it was pure routine. How many of us opened up the medicine cabinet, got out the toothbrush, the toothpaste, whatever, and as we began brushing our teeth this morning, we took, out, we took out the toothpaste and we're like, yes, Crest Whitening Ultra. This paste, you know, it's, it's filled with fluoride. This is going to change my life. And I put this on my toothbrush. And then I'm just, I'm, oh, my molars. And yeah, oh, the, the, this side and that side, the top, the bottom, oh, and the, and the gums. What this is going to do for my mouth. Like, and then I got done and I'm like, oh, I brushed my teeth. No, that's not what happens. Most of the time, we go through, uh, and I've done this many times, where I'm standing at the sink, and I'm like, did I just brush my teeth? And I have to check my toothbrush to see if it's wet or not, right? It's mindless. It's just this quick routine. It's this thing that we do. We don't think anything about it. We can have a whole conversation. We can uh, do all sorts of things and, and, and go through this routine and go through this motion and do this action and do this thing, and it does not impact us at all. Purely in our subconscious. We could do it in our sleep, right? Now that's knowledge. We've got it. We've got it down. We've got the way that we do it. Sometimes you go to the dentist and they'll tell you, oh, there's this one little area you're probably missing when you're brushing. Why? Because you do the same routine. You start on the same side of your mouth every single time. Check. You watch. You will. It's a routine. But here's the thing. Coming to church Singing a worship song, praying before a meal, or even taking communion can become a ritual without meaning or impact. It can just become a habit. Now, brushing your teeth is a good habit. 
Praying before a meal is a good habit. Coming to church on Sundays is a good habit. So I'm not saying that all habits are bad. That's not, that's not the way it is. But they can become a ritual that has no meaning or impact. But the first communion that Jesus held with his disciples was deeply impacting. So let's look at our passage here in Luke 22. We're going to start in verse 7. Here's what it says. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. That's Jesus right there for you, right? And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover in verse 14. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, with a simple read of that, especially if you don't have a whole lot of Bible background, that just seems like kind of this weird after-dinner activity that Jesus came up with. Like, what is going on here? Why is he doing this? But the disciples had a much deeper understanding of this whole Passover feast that, was, that they were taking part in that Jesus was explaining to them. Now, in our study of Genesis, we've been learning about, like I said, what a covenant is. I've given you a definition of a covenant. A covenant is a sacred bond between two parties. And now that we have this idea of, of a covenant, of what it is, we realize a little bit more of what Jesus meant when he said that he's giving them a new covenant. The Passover meal, which is where we started here, this Passover meal was a once-a-year festival that all of the Jewish people would celebrate. They still celebrate it today, right? If you're Jewish, Passover is one of your most important holidays of the year. And the Passover meal, where Jesus instituted communion, was a celebration of the Old Covenant rescue when God led his people out of the slavery of Egypt. All right? 
And he told Abram, um, if you remember from last week, that it would happen in Genesis 15, but also that he would rescue them from Egypt. He didn't tell them that your, your offspring will end up in Egypt, but what he did say is, for 400 years, they're going to be held captive. And as history went on, that's exactly what took place. The Israelites were held captive in Egypt, and the Passover was this event that rescued them. So it was tied to the Old Covenant. So when Jesus is talking about, brings in covenant conversation to these disciples sitting around celebrating the Passover meal, they know, whoa, we're talking covenants here. This is big. This is really big. Here we are hundreds and hundreds of years later from this this first covenant with Abram, and now you're talking about a new covenant? It's in the book of Exodus that we learn about the events of that rescue when God brought plagues upon the land of Egypt where the people were slaves in order to cause Pharaoh to release them from captivity. And the Passover commemorated the final plague in Egypt when the angel of death passed through the land and killed the firstborn of the land in every family. The Israelites then were told to kill a lamb, take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of their houses, and then the angel of death would pass over their houses. That's where the name Passover comes from. That the angel would pass them over in doing what he was going to be doing. And that night, they cooked the lambs that had been killed and ate them with unleavened bread. You might have seen that at the very beginning of our passage about unleavened bread. Leaven is the thing in bread that causes bread to rise. All right, so we can get a nice big loaf of bread. It required leaven to make that, that bread rise. Unleavened bread doesn't have the yeast in it or the leaven. So what happens is it doesn't ever rise. That agent, that chemical process doesn't take place. So it's basically just this flat, dry cracker. <laughs> All right, and that's what they had on the very first night because they didn't have time to say, well, we've got to you know, make up the bread dough and then let it rise for a while before we cook this. No, you don't have time. Make your bread, cook it, and whatever comes out, eat it. Because after this was going to take place, they would be kicked out of Egypt the very next morning. And so they had to eat this on the run. They had to eat what they'd cooked. They've got to take their unleavened bread and go and get out. And the people of Israel would keep the tradition honoring this even today. Moses told them that they would do so in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24. He said, you shall observe this right, this whole process of this Passover meal, as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, promise, that's connected to covenant, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Do you see what was going to be passed on? It was going to be passed down generation after generation after generation. Why do we have a Passover meal? Why do we do this? Because of this covenant promise that God made to us where he said, I'm going to rescue you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to re remove you from this captivity. I'm going to deliver you. And so because of that, to honor that promise that God kept for us, every generation from here on out is going to 
take part in this Passover meal. That's why the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, Passover's coming up, and that's a big deal, and you know it's a big deal, so where are we going to do this? And that's why Jesus already had things lined up. Well, let me tell you where you're going to do this. You're going to go here, you're going to talk to this guy, he's going to have this furnished room ready to go, you guys get the supplies, cook it, get the meal ready. I don't even tell you what to cook, because it's a Passover meal. You know exactly what we're eating. <laughs> and you guys get that all set up, and I'll meet you there. And so then they come together and they have this feast like they've always done year after year after year after year, generation after generation. They're having the Passover feast. They're celebrating the goodness of God, the promises of God, and how he covenanted with them and how he was going to take care of them. They're going through all the process. And then Jesus totally goes off script. Because now, where they're expecting, okay, this is great. That was, the, that was the end of the Passover. Jesus says, hold on, guys. We've gone through the ritual. We've gone through the routine. We've brushed our teeth. But let me tell you, there's something else that's about to happen right now. And something else that's about to happen is this new covenant. This new thing that is going to supersede everything that came before it. It's going to fulfill all of that old covenant promises, but it's a whole new thing that's going to take place. It's a whole new thing. And during the Passover meal, the blood of the lamb was represented with wine. The bread was unleavened, just like the first Passover. Does that sound familiar? It should. The feast that Jesus and the disciples were celebrating was a time to remember God's deliverance and the freedom that he gave them as a people. But when Jesus took the bread and the cup, those two items that had deep meaning already to the disciples, he took them and gave them new meaning. A new meaning. The bread and the cup would not only rescue people from captivity on earth, but would rescue people from their sins and the certain death that would follow. This was much deeper than even the incredible thing of being released from slavery. That was a big deal. That covenant promise that God kept was a big deal. But Jesus is telling them, guys, what I'm about to do is so much deeper I'm not just going to rescue some, some slaves, which is huge. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue the planet and everyone that has lived and will ever live. And I'm going to make a way that all people could be free from their sins. His body, his blood, bringing salvation not only to Israelites, but all that would receive it. And when we come together for communion, we're celebrating that new covenant. And just as God confirmed both sides of the old covenant with Abram, Jesus confirmed both sides of the covenant for us. He did it all. Think about that for a second, guys. He did it all. Your sins are gone. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And there's more. <laughs> now,
Now, here's the thing. Let's talk a little more about this, about the impact of communion. Because many traditions kind of squabble over the, the proper definitions and descriptions of what takes place in communion. When we now participate in this, this meal, how does it impact us? Is it more than just a ritual? All right? Now, some say that communion is a symbolic act of obedience. All right? Others say that it's a, a mystical conveyance of grace. Now, I do want you to know as a church, as South Point, corporately, we don't think that either of those positions interfere with somebody's salvation or their right standing before God. All right, so there's room in this room for people on both ends of the spectrum. All right, that's not a problem. We can still have fellowship together. There's room for both in our church. But I'm going to just tell you what I think we see in Scripture and what we understand from this. I believe that the Lord's Supper, communion, is a symbol of grace and a means of grace. But I want to explain it to you a little bit. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 26, Paul writes this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus... On the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus told us to share in communion and remember what he did on the cross for us. He's taught us that, to remember this. Do it in remembrance of him. So why, though, is it important for us even to proclaim the Lord's death? That's what he says. When you're doing this, you're saying, Jesus died. Why does is, why is that matter? Are we proclaiming that Jesus failed? Oh, he came to earth, but he died. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're proclaiming his love for us. That someone would go to the cross for us. That someone would sacrifice himself for us as sinners. And when we do that, we're declaring his love for the rest of the world. And when others look in and are like, what is the whole thing about the whole cup and bread thing that you guys do? That's what we're describing. We're declaring to them, Jesus died for us. He would come to earth and die for us because he loves us so much. So as a symbol, this symbol of body and blood, this symbol is powerful. And when we come to a place of communion, we're not going just through this ritual. Oh, this is where I take the bread. This is where I take the cup. For those of you raised in the Catholic background, it's like which hand goes on which? Like if I'm going to actually go through the thing and kneel here and stand up here. and It's ritual. This is meant to be deeper than that, a reminder that I am in him and he is in me. The bread symbolizes his body, the cup, his blood. Now here's the thing. They're not, they're not magical, right? The, the, the 
bread and the cup, they're not magical things. They're ordinary symbols of an extraordinary sacrifice. And, and although they're ordinary items, communion isn't supposed to be just a, an ordinary meal. When we gather together in, in communion, we're, it's meant to be an act of worship. This is what I'm getting at with this, guys. What I'm trying to get you to see here, what I'm trying to speak to your hearts today and try to wake you up in your souls is that we don't want to just come and go through the motions when we come into communion. What we're meant to do is truly enter in to a deep, sacred place with God. And when we truly worship, we're impacted, we're changed, we're transformed by God. And that's why I think that communion is meant to be more than just a symbol. Is it a symbol? Absolutely. A beautiful symbol. But there's more taking place in here. We receive grace from God to us through this sacrament. Now, I have to be very clear. Does that mean that by taking communion, we earn God's grace? No. No. Salvation is by faith through grace. It's not of works, lest anyone would boast. This isn't something where we come and say, I'm going to take communion, so then God's got to hear my prayer. I'll get some grace. I know where to go get grace. No, that's not how it works. It's not that we, get, we receive grace at communion because he's obligated to give it to us. That's not how it works. It's when we enter into a place of worship, we automatically get grace because that's where grace is because we're entering into God's presence. Do you see the difference? For those who say it, it can only be symbolic because if it's anything beyond symbolic, then you're earning it. Well, no, that's, that's not true. All of the spiritual practices are not They're not built in a way where we get grace because we do those things. We put ourselves in a place to receive grace. You don't pray to God to force force God's hand. You pray to God because you're drawing close to him. You're coming to a place where you are in his presence. And in his presence, you can change. We can be transformed. That's what it is all about. God is abundant with grace and he's ready for us. So we come not to, in prayer, not to earn his attention. We come to the place that his attention has already been. We fast, not so that God will feel sorry for us and bless us, but so that we can quiet our flesh and hear our heavenly father. And we worship through communion, not just to show other people a symbol of what God has done, which is huge and good and wonderful, but also to commune. That's why we call it communion, to connect with our Savior and the family of God. So here's how we finish here today. This is a a question I have for you. And, And honestly, this is the question that made me want to steer in a different direction this morning. Because I want to ask you this, and I feel like we all need to ask ourselves this. And and the question's pretty simple, straightforward. Are we a worshiping church? Are we a worshiping church? And I'm basing that on this whole description of what I've been talking about from the beginning of, okay, here's the introduction to something. Here's the familiarity to something. 
But here's now the place of where you can actually worship. Are we worshiping when we're taking communion together? We're familiar with it. We understand it. We even try to do a pretty good description for those who come to church and maybe never even taken it before. So we've gotten to that spot. But do we move our hearts into this other place? Do we know how to move our hearts into a place of worship? Are we only coming to God out of routine and ritual? Because great-grandma told me I was supposed to? Or are we people that worship when we gather together? As a church, one of the things that we value and are aiming for in this church, we describe it as immersive worship, okay? Here's the thing about that. What is it? What we're saying is we want to soak ourselves in worship. We want to be people that participate in worship. You may not have noticed this, but you're not coming to get worship. You're coming to bring worship. The worship of God is in each one of your souls. It's in all of us together. When we come to a service and we gather together, we are bringing the worship. When we sing these songs, guys, we're not supposed to just be singing cute poetry. We're meant to worship God. We're meant to throw ourselves into it. We're called to engage in worship. And sometimes we hit the mark, but sometimes we don't. But that's what we want to aim for. Let's be those people. I would hate for us to be a people, even if it's one or two of us, that are the sorts of people that live our lives kind of peeking inside the door of worship. It's like, yeah, I go to church and that's what those people over there do. They like worship in there and stuff. It's pretty cool. I love it out here. No, no, no. We want you all in. We want you to come in. I, I, I hate for people to come in and sit down and be like, that was such a good, Dave sang such a good song today. That was a good one. He, he was really worshiping. That was great. Good job, Dave. Right? That's not what it's supposed to, that's not what it's for. I mean, I'm glad that he's worshiping too, but that's not what it's for. That's not what we're supposed to do. Let's be people that go all the way in. This is an invitation to worship. One more verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. That's exactly what Paul describes it as. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless. That's this cup of communion here. Is it not a participation The word there for participation, actually in the Greek, is another word that you might know of the Greek words, koinonia, fellowship. It is a fellowship in the blood of Christ. You're connecting to it. The bread that we break is not a participation. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Again, same word. It's fellowship with. It's a connection to. It's communion We're fellowshipping with Jesus in this meal. And if we're being connected to Jesus, that means we're being transformed and shaped by his goodness and by his grace. That's why we sing songs like, Oh, come to the altar. Because we need an invitation. 
We need to invite each other to come near and come close and enter in. And that's what I'm calling you to here today. And I believe that's what God's calling us to. He's calling us to worship. So today, let's come into his presence and let's offer worship that is in spirit as well as in truth. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for the new covenant that is found in our Savior Jesus. We are thankful, Lord, that you've given us a tangible way that we can be reminded physically of your great love for us. And God, this morning I ask that you would grow our hearts as a church, as a people. Lord, that you would expand our hearts to worship. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit today would be touching hearts. And God, I pray that we would not be people that just go through routine and ritual, Lord, but the things that we do that are meant to be acts of worship would truly enter into that place. And Lord, today, as we take time at the beginning of this Advent season, this this beautiful time of anticipation and remembrance of the birth of Jesus Christ, God, I pray that, that you would allow us to be people of worship, people that can enter in to worship. And even if today might be the very first time that that my brothers and sisters here this morning have entered into a place of worship, wonderful. Let them enter into worship through communion. Let us never cheapen these things and allow them to just go into our habits. But instead, Lord, may we truly engage and interact with you in this great opportunity. And so today, Lord, we ask that you would make this room a sacred place for worship. You are the living God. We're not here to worship some old dead God who died on a cross 2,000 years ago or a God who made a promise to a man named Abram thousands of years ago. Uh, That's not why we're here, Lord. We're here to meet with the living God. And so we pray, Lord, that you would meet us here. It's in Jesus' name.